Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Well, today is our second week in this series, Misquoted. Uh, The misquote today is God helps those who help themselves. And so we're going to be looking at an example in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. Uh, And Terry's going to come read that for us now. Good morning. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that he ju- that just as he had begun, so he should also complete complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I am not saying this as a command, rather by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this manner I am giving advice because it is profitable for you who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be a relief, there should be relief for others and a hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their needs so that their abundance may in turn meet your need. In order that there may be equality, as it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Praise be to God. All right, so like I said, the the quote this week is, God helps those who help themselves. And and I wonder why this word even became um, something that people said. You know, it's not in the Bible. It's not biblical at all. God helps those who help themselves. And yet, according to certain polls, uh, something like 54% of believing Christians believe that it's a biblical phrase. Yet nowhere in the Bible is it found. And I think it's because we live in a world that wants to believe that I earn what I get, and I get what I earn. And if I don't get, then I haven't earned it. And if I do get, then I have earned it. We like to believe that because it's easy. It's black and white. It's straightforward. I've gotten what I've earned, and I haven't gotten what I haven't earned. 
And if you don't have, it's because you haven't earned. Therefore, I have no responsibility for you in your poverty. You have no responsibility for me in my poverty. Because if I don't have, it's because I didn't earn it. I didn't work hard enough. It's an easy, convenient narrative that absolves us of responsibility of caring for one another. And that builds us up when we do have, especially if we have a lot. We can tell ourselves, I earned this, therefore I'm entitled to it. Therefore, I get to enjoy all of the benefits of what I have earned. I think we like this phrase because it presents an easy narrative for us, and it's very black and white. And the fact is, the scripture is not that black and white. On most issues, the Bible is just not that clear. And so you could go to many, many passages of the Bible and back up that statement, God helps those who help themselves. There are plenty of places you could go and you could quote to say, well, this seems like a true principle, particularly in the Proverbs. You'll read over and over that if you, the lazy person won't get their wages, the lazy person doesn't deserve their wages, the lazy person shouldn't be helped. In fact, even in the epistles or in the Acts, what we read in the New Testament, that the, the Apostle Paul will say, look, those who don't work shouldn't eat. Right? If you're not contributing, then you don't deserve anything. If you're not working, if you're not doing what you can. And so there are plenty of places in the Bible we could go and say, absolutely, Scripture says you must apply yourself, you must work, you must take responsibility for your life, and you must take responsibility for caring for yourself and for the people God has given you to care for. That is absolutely a biblical principle. There's no question about that. Nowhere does it say that any of us get to lie back and just let everybody else provide for us unless we're incapable of work. Only if we are absolutely incapable of providing for ourselves, then the scripture tells a very different story. Or if we're part of an oppressed group and we don't have the same equality and opportunities as other people, then the scripture says we ought to be cared for. In fact, the, the Apostle James says this very thing right at the beginning of his letter. He says, true religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, orphans and widows are the weakest people in society that James can point to. And what he's saying there is, look, these people who are incapable of providing for themselves ought to be provided for by the church. Now, the widows and orphans don't get totally off the hook. They have to do what they can, do what they are able to do. But in this world where all that an orphan can do, all that a widow can do, can't provide for them, the church is there to make up the gap, to stand in the gap between their ability and their need. There are lots of people in our world now whose ability can't meet their need. It's just not possible. There are plenty of people in our world who, for various reasons, their abilities just can't meet the need of their lives. And that's where the church steps in the gap and stands between one's ability to provide for themselves and the need that they actually have. That's what Scripture calls us to. And that's a much more flexible gray area than the black and white of God helps those who help themselves. If you just work hard enough, God will provide for you. And if you're not getting what you need, it's because you're not working hard enough, so God's not providing for you. That's an easier narrative 
then you know what? There are people who can work as hard as they possibly can and yet for various reasons just cannot meet their need and the church must stand in the gap for them. We must stand in provision for them. That's the narrative of Scripture. In fact, back in the prophets in the Old Testament, all too often when God sent a prophet to speak to the king and to speak to the nation of Israel, what he would say is, "Here, I want you to, one, number one, stop following idols, and number two, care for the poor. All through the prophets. In fact, I dare you to go read the prophets. If it'll get you reading the Bible, I'll tell you anything. I dare you to go read the prophets and find a place where the prescription of the prophet, the prescription of God for his people is something other than stop worshiping other gods and start caring for the poor. Over and over and over again, God says, that's what faithfulness to me looks like. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 58, that is the exact prescription that he gives. The people have been in rebellion against God. The people have been walking away from God. They've been worshiping idols. And when they worship idols, inevitably, when the people of God start worshiping other gods, they start oppressing the people around them. They don't pay their workers a fair wage. They don't care for the sick and the destitute and the widows among them. They start to hoard things to themselves because that's the way that the idols lead. They lead people into selfishness. And so in chapter 58 of Isaiah, Beginning at verse 9, here's what the prophet says. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. That is, if you repent of following these other gods and you change your ways, then when you call upon God, he will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. Now, here's the condition. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, Then your light will shine in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land, and strengthen your bones. You'll be like watered garden and like a spring whose water never runs dry. So here's God's prescription to the people. If you want to flourish, don't look out for yourself. Look out for those who can't look out for themselves. If you really want to flourish in the world, people of God, look out for the people who you've oppressed. Look out for the people who can't make up the gap between their effort and their need. That's what God is calling his people to. Drop the idols and care for the poor. Drop the idols and care for the people who can't care for themselves. Drop the idols and care for the people who you have hurt in your selfishness. Over and over and over in the prophets, that's what God calls his people to. To work hard, to provide where they can, and to stand in the gap for other people. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this appeal of the Apostle Paul to this church in Corinth is not new. It's an ancient appeal. It's an appeal the people of God have been making for generations, as God has said to them, stand in the gap for those who can't stand for themselves. So here's what's going on in in 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote a bunch of letters to all the churches that he planted, not just the ones we have in the New Testament. In fact, in the letters to the church in Corinth, in these Corinthian letters, Paul refers to other letters that he wrote to the Corinthian church that we don't have in the Bible. 
So he had a long correspondence going with these people. This was, these weren't the only two letters. In fact, there's one letter that we call the harsh letter where Paul really just rips into this church and we don't have it in the Bible. And here's why I think we might not have it. I think Paul might have gone a little overboard in the harsh letter and he might have gotten into some sinful territory and God didn't want that preserved in scripture for us. I think he, I think he probably went a little bit too hard on these people in the harsh letter. We know that there's at least one letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote to this church where he really comes down hard on them and he comes down hard on their sin and he comes down hard on their giving and the way that they're treating one another. And so what Paul does at the beginning here of chapter 8 is Paul's kind of going back and he's revisiting this topic that he's brought up with the Corinthian church multiple times. He brings it up the first time in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says, look, the church in Jerusalem is really suffering. The church in Jerusalem is having a really hard time. They've got a lot of poor people. Because as I've said before, when you become a Christian, if you're a Jewish person and you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus... Once the Jews realize that followers of Jesus are, are not exactly like them, that, that, they're, they're, that Jesus has called them to a slightly different way of life, they expel the Jewish people, the Jewish followers of Jesus, from the synagogues. And as a Jewish person, when you get expelled from the synagogue, you lose everything. You lose your social contacts, you lose your work, you lose your support system, you lose your income. And of course, the greatest concentration of Jews in this world is in Jerusalem. So the Christians in Jerusalem are mostly former Jews who have lost their social safety net. They've lost their connections. They've lost their work. They've lost their livelihoods. They are struggling, really struggling. And they don't have opportunity to make up the difference for themselves. There's nothing they can do to work harder to meet their needs. They're doing all they can, and they're beating their heads against the wall, and they're still not getting their needs met. And so Paul is now going out into the churches that he's talking to. He's saying, hey, we've been asked to remember the poor in Jerusalem, and so would you give an extra offering that I could take back to Jerusalem to support our impoverished brothers and sisters there? who are suffering under persecution, who are suffering the loss of their livelihoods, and who just can't make ends meet. And so would you, would you give some extra? And he's done this now for the Corinthians at least once, probably more than that. He does it to the Roman church when he writes in Romans, I can't remember what chapter it is, but he writes to the Roman church and commends them for their offering to the poor in Jerusalem. And now in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is pointing the Corinthian Christians to another church that's given to the offering for Jerusalem. And he says at the beginning, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is a region. The cities of Thessalonica and Philippi are both in Macedonia. What we know about the Macedonian churches is that they had really struggled. They had really suffered too. In fact, you can go back and read in Acts chapters 16 and 17, I think, when the Apostle Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica, he gets run out of town. He has to go and escape to another town because these guys who are after him are just really putting the pressure on him. And so we know that there was a heavy presence against the church in the city of Thessalonica. It's what ran Paul away. 
When you read the letters 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul expresses so much gratitude to the churches in Thessalonica. He expresses so much love for them because he's got a special place in his heart for them. He thought the church was going to die in Thessalonica. So when he finds out it's flourishing, he's excited. He's like, man, you guys have stood the test. You guys have really stood against persecution. Like, these guys ran me out. I thought they were going to kill me. But the church is flourishing. It's thriving in Thessalonica. But because of the persecution there, it's poor. It's really struggling. Same was true in Philippi. You read the letter to the Philippian church. The letter to the Philippian church is entirely encouragement. Right? There's no correction there. Why? Because the Philippian Christians were struggling. They were suffering. Paul wasn't going to come down hard on them. They needed encouragement more than anything. Paul comes down on the Corinthian church because they're wealthy, they're thriving, and they're accepted largely in society. Corinth was such a cosmopolitan city, it was such a city of clashing cultures anyway, that one new religion wasn't that big a deal. And a lot of the Christians in Corinth are Gentiles. They're coming from pagan backgrounds. They're coming from other places. They're not Jewish. So they don't face the same struggle that the Christians in Philippi and Thessalonica and Jerusalem face. So they're able to continue their work. Corinth is a major trade port. It's a major market. So people are wealthy. Corinth is a wealthy town, and the church there is wealthy as well, and it's thriving. So because this church is thriving and not struggling in its context, that's why Paul can come down harder on them. That's why Paul demands of them a greater faithfulness, because they haven't faced the same kind of struggle that Philippi and Thessalonica and Jerusalem have faced. And so he can be a little harder on them, because they're kind of just sitting back and riding easy. They don't have to face the other stuff that everybody else is. So when Paul goes to Corinth, he expects them to give graciously, expects them to give abundantly for the people who are really struggling and for people who are really suffering. And that's where this chapter comes from. That's where this appeal to these Christians comes from. But he doesn't come out and shame them for their wealth. That's important. Paul doesn't shame them for their abundance, nor does he command them to give. Paul starts out by saying, I want you to hear about the grace of God that was given to the Macedonian churches. The grace of God that was given to the Macedonian churches. What is that grace? That grace is the power and ability to give in their time of need. Paul points to the churches in Thessalonica and in Philippi and says, these guys are really suffering. They're poor. They don't have the resources that you have. But look what they've done by the power of the grace of God. They've given above and beyond their need. They've given above and beyond what they could afford to give. And they did it eagerly. They wanted to. In this situation, the church in Corinth is like the rich guy who walks into the temple and puts in his little bit of money and then praises God. And the churches in Macedonia are like the little old lady who only has two pennies and she puts them in the offering in the temple. And Jesus says she gave more than the rich guy because she gave all she had. And Paul is taking that same theme and he's saying, look at these poor churches. Look at how they've given Look at how they've loved. Look at how the grace of God is operating among them to move them to give beyond their own ability and to do it with great joy and eagerness. And so Paul doesn't shame Corinth for their wealth. He points them to a better way. 
just as Jesus did with the rich man and the little lady in the temple when he said the rich guy gave way less than that woman because she gave everything. Paul's doing the same thing. And so the first thing we need to learn here is that the sharing of our resources is a gift of grace. It is a demonstration of the grace of God. Paul says, look at the grace that was given in their giving. And later, in verse 8, Paul will say, or verse verse 7, Paul will say, Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. You see, within the Christian church, especially within more evangelical churches, we think of grace primarily as something that we receive. All too often, we think of grace self-centeredly. It's something that flows from God to us and then might flow from us to other people. But primarily grace is that gift of forgiveness and of acceptance that God gives to us as he wipes away our sin and brings us in. And that is absolutely true. But grace is also an act. It is an empowered act that we as those who have received God's grace then give to other people. Grace is something we do. It's something God does and it's something we do. And it's something that we can only do when empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Grace is an act of God through us, empowered by his Holy Spirit for the love of others, for the sake of others. We don't get to be simply consumers of God's grace, recipients of God's grace. We are conduits of God's grace. Yes, it flows to us, but if it stops there, if it doesn't flow through us, then we've not really experienced the grace of God. Until we are conduits through which God's grace flows, we have not experienced the fullness of it. But to those who will allow God's grace to flow through them, God will perpetually pour grace on them. We continually receive the grace of God, not to hoard and to become fat cats, but in order to be conduits to other people, to allow the grace of God to flow through us, to meet their needs, to encourage them, to build them up, to seek shalom for them. That's what grace is. Grace is a verb. It's something we do. It is an act we undertake empowered by God's Spirit. That's what grace ought to be for us. And the more that we experience grace, the more it wants to move through us to find a home in someone else so that they too can become conduits of God's grace. Grace is an act that we give to one another. Because it's the act that's been done to us. Paul roots everything he says in chapter 8 in these couple of verses here. Verse 9, listen to this. For you know, and he says, for you know. That's how you know he's basing everything he's saying on this statement. When he says, for, you've said something before, therefore this. 
And so we know he's rooting everything that he's saying in this statement here in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Now, there are so many ways of speaking about the gospel, so many metaphors that the Bible uses, so many analogies that Paul makes to what the gospel is. It's not an accident that he uses the language of rich and poor when he's talking about giving here. And he's talking about Corinth and Macedonia and Jerusalem. That language is very intentional. He's saying, for your sake, Christ became poor so that you might become rich. Now, what does that say about our state apart from Christ? What does that say about the Corinthian state apart from Christ? That apart from Christ, they are poor. No matter how well endowed they are, no matter how much money they have, no matter how successful they are in their business, no matter what their market looks like, apart from Christ, regardless of the physical resources they have, they are poor. Friends, you can have as much as you want in this world. You can have money flowing out your ears. You can have Scrooge McDuck's giant vault and swim through those gold coins all you want. But apart from Jesus, you're poor, impoverished. You have no wealth. Doesn't matter what you can buy. Doesn't matter what you can own. Doesn't matter what kind of clothes you can wear, what kind of car you can drive, what kind of private plane you can fly. Apart from Jesus, you are poor. Paul wants to drive that home with this illustration by saying Jesus is the one who had all the riches in all of the cosmos and yet became poor to make you rich. He's saying, look, Corinthians, you think you're rich because of your wealth. But you're not. Apart from Jesus, you are impoverished. And only through him do you know what true riches are. Only through him can you know what true enrichment and provision is. And so Paul's letting them know. He's grounding everything here in the grace of God poured out for us in Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we are poor. It is only through Jesus that we know true riches. And when we know the true riches of Jesus Christ, then all of those physical riches lose their value to us. When we truly know the grace of Jesus Christ, the enrichment that only he can give us, when we know that apart from him, we are desperately, wretchedly poor, but in him, we are immeasurably rich, then all of the resources of this world mean nothing to us except what they can do for his glory. When we are secure in who Jesus has called us, when we are secure in the provision that he brings, then everything that we have is now a tool to glorify Jesus and to serve one another. That's where Paul wants to take these Corinthian Christians, from a place where they are dependent upon their wealth and upon their status in the world to a place where they are dependent upon who they are in Jesus so all that wealth and status can be used for his glory and for the good of other people. That's why he roots this argument in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, for those of us who are in Christ, our affluence is given to us 
to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. If we have more than enough, then it is there for us to meet the needs of those who don't. That's exactly what he says here at the end. Now also, finish the task. That is, Paul saying, look, I came to you before about this, and you started giving. Now I want you to complete your giving. We're going to close out this account. Now is the time to give all that you can. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. Now previously he said, you began to do this, And the undercurrent there is as an act of obedience. You weren't really into it. Your heart wasn't really in it. You began to do it in obedience. Now that's good. But Paul's saying, as you continue to obey, I pray that this grows into an eager act of love. That your act of obedience would become a desire of love. So that you're not compelled to do it, but that you want to do it. And he's praying for their eagerness to grow in this. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable, listen to this, according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. God doesn't hold you to some standard of things he hasn't given you. He doesn't expect you to give the same as the person next to you who makes five times what you do. The gift is acceptable according to what you have. That is, it's relative for everybody according to our own ability and our own assets. What we give is a matter of the heart and it's a matter of proportion. Not of absolute everybody's got to give this amount. God, Paul is wanting these people to be moved in love. And so he goes, it is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much and the person who had little did not have too little. Now, I know that this is a tricky subject in our current political climate. The issue of equality. Because we live in a world that very much wants to believe God helps those who help themselves and you get what you earn and, it, and don't take what I've earned to give to somebody who hasn't earned. That's, that's our world. And honestly, that's not a bad principle. I'm not for coercion. Paul's not for coercion. He's not demanding. In fact, he said that very thing. I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm doing this as a test of your love. I'm appealing to you on behalf of your love. So there's no rule or principle in the scripture that says, if you have X amount, you must give so much in order for it to be redistributed to those who don't have. That's not there. And so let's let's just leave the whole socialism argument off the table because that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the grace of God and the love of Christ moving us to look at our assets and say, you know what, I really do have more than I need, and there are plenty of my brothers and sisters right now who can't even meet their basic needs, and maybe my excess is here in order to meet their basic needs. That's the principle of Scripture. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's looking at these very wealthy, rich 
Corinthian Christians who have way more than they need. And he's saying, God has given you that in order to meet the basic needs of your brothers and sisters who can't meet them for themselves. That's why you have wealth, not for your own enjoyment, not for your own security, not to build bigger barns. You have wealth to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters who have nothing. And so Paul's flipping the tables here. You see, these Corinthian Christians, they can't fathom a time when they'll be poor, when they'll be in need. They've been wealthy. They've been cared for. They're not generally in need. And so when Paul says, your excess exists for their need, so that when you're in need, their excess will meet your needs, they go, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I, I can't even fathom that. I've been so well cared for for so long. I've had so much at my disposal. I can't even fathom the day that a kind of persecution would come to my home, would come to my place, and impoverish me so that my other brothers and sisters would, have, would meet my needs. And, and ain't that a lesson for American Christians? Ain't that a lesson for those of us who live in the affluent West? Those who have so much more than the rest of the world? Brothers and sisters, look. Right now we live in a privileged position. Right now we still live with plenty. There will come a day. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but maybe so. There will come a day when our excess will not exist anymore, when that privilege won't exist anymore, there will come a day when those Central African nations might be supporting the church here in the U.S. There will come a day when our poor brothers and sisters in the Philippines are the ones pouring resources into the American church. I don't know when that day will be. It was true for the Corinthian church, and it will be true for you and me. Right now, these words might ring hollow to us when Paul says, look, America, U.S. church, your excess exists to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters so that one day their excess may meet your needs. That may sound so strange to us. And yet there will come a day that that will be the case, just as it was in Corinth. So we are being called here not to judge others based on their own laziness or productivity. We're being called here not to, not to rest on our own earning and our own efforts and find security in the assets that we've been given. We are being called to look upon the cross of Jesus Christ and be reminded that our Savior, who was immeasurably rich, became poor in order to enrich us. And that's what we ought to be doing as well. In the love of our hearts as an act of grace, giving to our brothers and sisters in need, putting food on their table where they can't, taking the excess from our own budgets and sending it to our brothers and sisters who desperately need because that's what the body of Christ is about. It's about equality across the board. It's about the principle of manna. That's what this last line is from. It's a quote from Exodus during the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and the manna was falling from heaven. Manna is a Hebrew word that literally means what is it? Ma, what, na, it. What is it? So when the Hebrew people came out of their tents while they were wandering in the desert, they saw this white stuff laying on the ground. They were like, what's that? That's a good name for it. And then they collected it. 
And we're told that enough fell so that everybody had just enough. So that the people of God were provided for in their need. And no one hoarded more than they needed. In fact, if you hoarded more manna than would last you for the day, the next day you would find it rotten and full of worms. You couldn't eat it. That's the principle of the body of Christ. That's the principle of God's people. Equality with everyone's needs met. Where my excess exists to make sure that we're meeting the basic needs of those who can't meet them for themselves. Because Christ came to me. He helped me when I could not help myself. We help one another when we can't help ourselves. And that's why we celebrate the cross of Christ. That's why we celebrate with this cup and this bread. We celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that reminds us that Jesus came to help me when I couldn't help myself. And that the principle of God is that we help those who are incapable of helping themselves. We rest upon the grace of Jesus. We remind ourselves of that when we take this body and this blood into ourselves. My life is founded upon the grace of God. Grace that is supposed to move through me as a conduit as I live in love for others. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.